Let me invite you to Ephesians chapter 5 this evening. Ephesians chapter 5 as we begin. We all understand that God is the one who causes the growth and the progress of the church. But from a human perspective, who is responsible for getting us there? As an example, um, is the progress of the church like the congregation giving the keys to the pastor and him driving the bus? Okay, We get there, no matter where he takes us, we have to go, that's, that's it. And um, so it is his responsibility and only his responsibility to think through all the implications of what church life should be about, what should be taught, what should be what should be the direction of the church. I would suggest to you that the progress of the church is less like riding on a bus for a congregation and more like being involved in a sports team. That yes, you do have leadership that the pastor should be much like a coach or a manager directing the, the group of athletes in to, toward a specific goal, but that it also requires work on the part of the individual players. And I think that is more in line with what the Scriptures teach. And so that requires, on the part of the congregation, activity. It requires submission to the, to the coach. It requires hard work. And this is really a continuation of what we have been looking at for these last 11 weeks, and that is the structure or, or the, how, how to have a healthy church. We said that a healthy church is not based on the size of a church, that it has a lot more to do with it, just like with our bodies, that, that health does not mean that, that we have to be the biggest we possibly can. Rather, there's lots of, lots of different things working together inside of our body to make us healthy. And we're working as a church to make sure that we are healthy. And so I said that there are at least four essentials to a healthy church. First of all, there should be, in every church, worship going on. And we seek to do that each Sunday, uh, two times on Sunday, in the morning service and the evening service. But there should also be instruction, another essential of a healthy church. That there should be instruction from the Word of God because... A church that's not being instructed in the Word of God is a church that is either dying or dead. And then there should be fellowship. That there should be a camaraderie, a community of the church. It's not just a bunch of us meeting together because we all have similar interests, but that we are taking part in other people's lives. We're seeking to meet each other's needs, to, to pray for one another and to be concerned about what, what is going on, to bear one another's burdens, as Paul has said. And then the fourth element is evangelism, that our church should uh, be constantly involved in evangelism, both, both as a body and as individuals within our own spheres of influence. And then we continued on by, after we looked at the essentials of a healthy church, we moved on to the structure what, what is it that makes a church healthy? What, what type of structure do we need? So we began by looking two weeks ago at the, the office of the deacons. The, the deacons who are chosen by the church to serve the primary purpose of the church, the spiritual well-being of the church, and that's what they're given to the church for. And, uh, and we saw in Acts chapter 6 that the reasoning for that was so that the pastor could give himself to prayer 
and the preaching of the Word. And then last week we looked at the office of the pastor, and this week we want to look at the congregation. And what we should understand is that the congregation was designed by God to display His glory as it properly works together uh, with its God-ordained leaders. That the congregation was designed by God to display God's glory as it properly works together with its God-ordained leaders. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is talking about the relationship between a husband and a wife towards the end of the chapter, and we're going to read verses 25 through 33. But before we do that, I just want to begin by saying that there is, uh, there is a great merit in having a congregation that is God-honoring. Because the church as a whole, not the leaders itself, the church as a whole is the vehicle through which God displays His glory. Of what value is the church to you? Have you ever thought about that? Of what value is the church to you? Do you exist for the church, or does the church exist for you? And really, that's kind of a trick question, because there is a sense in which the church does exist for you. There is a sense in which you need the church. I need the church. Many times, we think of the church as a place where other people need. Okay, We need to get other people to come to our church. But, but really, the church is what we need. That all of us need the church. That the church is here to help us as a whole grow spiritually. And so there is a sense in which the church does exist for us. It helps to meet our needs. It helps us to equip. Uh, it helps equip us for the battle against sin. It, it helps encourage us and strengthen us for the fight. But the, the church does not only exist for you as an individual so that you can grow spiritually as a person. When we gather together with other believers, we're not having a, a group personal devotions. Okay, We're not just, okay, we all like to have devotions, so let's all come together and just do it together. We don't come together like a bunch of shoppers on Black Friday. We all have the same sort of interests. We have no relationship to any of these people. We don't know these people, and we'll never see them again until next time there's a big sale. That's not what the church is like. The church is a living organism. It is a living institution, a viable organism, one body. It's supposed to be working together as a whole. And so when we understand the purpose of the church, we recognize that it's more than it's there for more than just helping us with our own spiritual problems, which it does do. But we begin to understand that the church is the primary way in which he displays his glory to the people of this world and to ourselves. Let's read together in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 25. What I want you to notice as we read is why God has designed the church. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her, so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife 
loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. What is the purpose of the church based on these verses? Did you see that there? Verse 27. Okay, It says that, or we could say so that. The reason that the church exists is that God might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. God has designed the church to display His greatness, and He does it through the congregation of believing people. And so what you should recognize, recognize is that we, as individuals, as a part of this church, are a work in progress. If God took us right now, could He present us as holy and blameless before Himself? Spotless, without any wrinkle? No. But He will one day. That doesn't mean that we'll have perfection in this church, but, but He's doing it uh, throughout our entire existence so that one day he can say, see, this is where these people were. This is where they are now. Do you see the excellencies of my grace? And he shows it not only to the world, but also to the angels. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Verses 8 through 10. To me, Paul says, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. The goal of the church, according to Ephesians chapter 5, is that we would be holy and blameless. Here we see that God's actually presenting the church to the angels and the, 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 um, the powerful authorities. In other words, the demons. Both the angels and the demons are looking down on the church and watching with great interest to see what God is doing there. And that means He's looking on this church. See if God really is a God of wisdom. They want to see God's glory displayed. And God's saying, you want to see my glory? You want to see my wisdom? I'll show it to you. In this age, this is how I show it to you. Through this church. A group of sinners who have no commonality besides the fact that they love Jesus Christ. And watch how they come together and display my greatness as they become more and more like my Son, Jesus Christ. That's my wisdom. Look at that model and be in awe of my greatness. What we ought to recognize is that as a church, we are a work in progress and that God is, is using the church for your personal benefit, but also for His personal benefit so that He can display His glory. 
We are a work in progress. We see in Ephesians 2.10 that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Okay, We think of other maybe immature Christians as workmanship, but actually that's referring to all believers that we are His workmanship. We're a work in progress. We're like a little piece of clay that God's molding. And um, and we are in Ephesians chapter two verses nineteen through twenty two. We are God's building. That God is is making this beautiful structure. Okay, think of yourself as a, a brick in that building, and God's putting that together in such a way so that the world and all the angels can look at it and say, "Wow, what great people!" No, what a great God to be able to do that kind of work in their lives. And so we should not lose heart in the middle of tribulations because God has allowed trials in our lives for our own glory, our own well-being, to help us to display His glory better so that one day we can be spotless at the purging process and we should should be thankful for that. So what we learn from this passage, these passages in Ephesians is is at least three things. Number one, God is serious about His own glory. He is very concerned that His name is honored. Number two, in this age, God displays His glory through the church. The way that God shows His greatness in this age is through His church. And so that means, number three, that God is very serious about our church's holiness. That He is very serious about our church's holiness. We don't have time to go into that in any more detail, but I wanted to lay that out for you to, so that you understand that the church is not about the leaders primarily. The, the church is about the whole working together as each joint supplies in order to display God's greatness. What I want to focus our attention on now is what congregationalism is. What congregationalism is. The meaning of congregationalism. We began with the merit of congregationalism, that is, that it displays God, God's glory, now the meaning. And I would uh, say that the meaning, uh, it, we can cover the meaning at least seven things. Number one, the congregation is made up of people who are police officers of corporate unity. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll be turning to several passages tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, police officers of corporate unity. Chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians verse 10. Paul writes to this church in Corinth, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Okay, so in three different ways, Paul says, be unified. He says, you need to all agree, have no disagreements among you, and be of the same mind. Okay, so, so he's basically saying that one verse, we need to be police officers, that is, as a whole congregation, we need to be police officers of corporate unity. That we can't allow little pockets of division to rise up within our church. And we shouldn't sit back passively and, and, and watch the leaders take care of all the problems. 
Okay? Rather, it is the responsibility of the church. Notice who Paul is writing to. He's writing this to the pastor at Corinth. Is he? No. He's writing, he's writing this to the entire church of Corinth. He's saying, all you people, make sure that there's no divisions among you. Make sure that there's unity in everything that you do. Uh, particularly those things that are uh, with regard to the Gospel. Now, that doesn't uh, put the pastor or leaders of the church off the hook, but we should recognize that there's never a case in the Scriptures. The, the Scriptures never teach that, that the congregation should be passive in the relationships that they have in the church. In fact, all but a few of the epistles, the letters in the New Testament, were written to churches as a whole, right? you got the Roman, the, the church in Rome, the, the book of Romans. The two churches, the two letters to the Corinthians. You've got the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians, excuse me. You've got James writing to churches. You've got Hebrews written to believers. And so, what we should understand from that is that that we have a responsibility as a congregation to police, to watch out for, be the watchdogs of corporate unity. But not only should we be police officers of corporate unity, but also of pure doctrine. Turn to Galatians chapter 1. Two books towards the back of your Bible. Galatians chapter 1. As a congregation, we ought to be police officers for pure doctrine. We saw last week that as your pastor, my responsibility is to watch out for the souls of the church. But notice here what Paul does not say in Galatians chapter 1. He does not say, shame on you pastors for speaking such heresy and allowing this pure doctrine to come into the midst. Now, I pray that I will never be teaching false doctrine, but notice what Paul does say here beginning in verse 6. Again, writing to the church as a whole, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Paul says, I am surprised at you that you're so quickly deserting the gospel of God. And if, if anyone comes to you, even if we, the apostles, me, Paul, or, or an angel, or any other person comes to you and preaches you another gospel than what you've already received, let him be accursed. He says it two times in verse 8 and in verse 9. And so whose responsibility is that to be the watchdog of pure doctrine? It is the congregation's. He says that the congregation needs to, to take responsibility in watching out for false doctrine and things leading to an unhealthy church. And you can say, well, how could that possibly be? Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We saw earlier that God displays His glory through the church. And we find another interesting statement about, about how God preserves truth. Yes, he does it through his word, but, but notice this, this uh, spectacular, I think, statement in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. 
Paul again, writing to, uh, this time he's writing to the pastor Timothy, but he says, But in case I'm delayed, I write to you that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. That last phrase there, the pillar and support of truth, is an appositional phrase. That is, it's just referring to the phrase before it. That the church of the living God, that's a prepositional phrase, okay? We could just simply say the church. The church is the pillar and support of truth. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to, um, we have to wait for the church to, to speak on a specific doctrine, but, but what he's saying is that the way that the, the truth is protected the way that the truth even of the Scripture is protected is through the church. Mark Dever writes this. He asks, Could it be that the Gospel itself is so simple and clear that the relationship we have with God by the Holy Spirit's action in giving us the new birth is so real that the collection of those who believe the Gospel and who know God are simply the best guardians of the Gospel? Who better to guard the gospel than the people who love it most? And you know, as a church, that is what you are to do. You are to love the gospel so much that you don't want to see it distorted. That you want it to be spoken clearly. And that you want it to be upheld. Jude chapter 1, verse 3, you don't have to turn there. Jude calls on believers to contend for the faith. Fight for it if you have to. The faith that was once delivered to all the saints. John in 1 John 4 1 writes that we should test the spirits to see that, that if see if they are from God. He doesn't talk to the pastors specifically. He's saying that the congregation, you believers, need to test the spirits, check to make sure that these things are from God. So the congregation is to be a are to be police officers of corporate unity, of pure doctrine, and then thirdly, of the ordinances. Of the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. What, If you turn to 1 Corinthians 11, you don't have to turn there, but 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, Paul is writing again to believers in the church at Corinth, not specifically to leaders, but the church as a whole. And he says that, that um, I delivered to this to you, that which is of first importance, that you need to take the Lord's Supper, and as often as you take it, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Okay, so continue to do that. He's talking to the church. And what we learn from that is, is that if a, if a pastor were deficient in, in uh, presenting the Lord's Supper, in other words, he, he thought, you know what, I don't see the importance of the Lord's Supper. And so he said, I think we ought to do away with it. As a church, you still have a responsibility to guard that ordinance of the Lord's Supper. That you need to make sure that that still is being uh, commemorated. That we're still remembering the death of the Lord Jesus. And so, really, there's no command that the pastor has to be the one that distributes the Lord's Supper. The church can actually do it on its own, apart from a defective pastor in that way. Hopefully it never comes to that, but, but you know how this works. That there are pastors who are not concerned with the truth or who are for a long time in their ministry and then they give up on it. And so God has designed a way that the congregation can help be the watchdogs for the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and of baptism. But also, um, 
In addition to corporate unity and pure doctrine and, and the ordinances, the fourth thing is that the congregation is to be made up of people who are police officers of chosen leaders. Okay, we already talked about these, so I won't take a whole lot of time to go through this, but but with regard to the deacons, remember Acts chapter six that Paul or the apostles said there that you choose from among yourselves men who are who would be worthy to do this. Okay, he's talking to the congregation. You choose. And they end up choosing seven choosing seven men. In Acts chapter fourteen, verse twenty three, Paul and Barnabas appointed pastors in every city. And the idea there I think is that they would set up and lead probably the word instead of appointed would probably better translate it installed, that they would install the pastors that the congregation had already voted on. And uh, so that's what Paul and Barnabas were doing, going from church to church and making sure that the congregation was voting pastors in. And then commissioning missionaries, Acts chapter 13, verse 2. So the congregation is to be made up of police officers of chosen leaders. And then... Fifthly, police officers of church membership. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The church as a whole is to be the group who is concerned about and watching over who is joining the church and who is leaving the church. Who, is, who should be leaving the church. In other words, church discipline. We'll get to that here in a second. The pattern in Acts seems to be that the church would would make a recommendation, or not a recommendation, but they would make the final vote on whether a, church, a member would be able to join the church. Um, they were commanded to accept a person uh, for baptism. So they were supposed to um, make sure that this person was a believer before that person was baptized. And so that was part of their responsibility. But also in disciplining members out of membership, making sure that the that the membership within our church is made up of believers who have been saved, okay, obviously that's what believers mean, saved, baptized, and then are continually, continuing in a faithful walk with God. And so the church is responsible for that. And if for some reason that a person falls away from the faith, if they begin to give up on the fight, then there is a way to um, enforce discipline. And that's what 1 Corinthians 5 is about, really. Paul here appeals to the entire congregation. Again, this is the letter to the church at Corinth, and here's what he says in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. So Paul lays out the problem that you as a whole, you've condoned it. You haven't done anything about it. You treat him as if he's uh, still a, a good standing member in your midst. Look at verse 7. You see Paul continue to give a command to the church as a whole. He says, clean out. This is a plural, um, this is a plural command. So he's talking, saying, you all clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Again, in verse 11, we see this, um, this call to the congregation to 
make sure that they're responsible in this area. Verse 11, But actually I wrote to you, that is you all, not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And then verse 13, But those who are outside, God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. You see that? That word, that last word there, yourselves, is clearly speaking of a whole group of people. He's not saying you as leaders need to get rid of these people, although the leaders still have responsibility. The responsibility, uh, based on what Paul is saying, lies in the church, the congregation as a whole. It's not the final decision of the pastor that determines whether or not a person joins or leaves the church. As a body, we we were the ones who have allowed this person to the church, and so as a body, we need to be willing to remove this person if they're not in good standing with God or not following God any longer. And so they had a choice in verse 13, according to what Paul said. They either remove this man from among them or stop calling themselves disciples of Christ. Okay? Either come into conformity with what I am telling you, based on my authority in Jesus Christ, or stop calling yourself a disciple of Christ because disciples of Christ would have removed this person from their midst. Number six, congregation is to be made up of police officers for internal conflict. Okay, that, that we need to be watchdogs as a congregation for internal conflict. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus sets up the very first way that we deal with this. That if, you, if, if a brother sins against you, or, or if he sins against God, then go to him individually and tell him about his sin. If he fails to listen to you, then take two or three with you. Okay? If he fails to listen to, to that group, then take it before the church. If he fails to listen to the church, then, then remove him from your midst. Get rid of him. And... Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 talks about the same sort of thing, that, that when there are internal conflicts within the church, they ought to be settled within the church. How bad of a testimony is, is it when two believers are fighting together over something and they're doing it in front of an unbelieving court? If there's matters of dispute, they need to be handled in the church. 1 Corinthians 6, 1-5. through 5. And then 7th, way in which the congregation exhibits its uh, responsibility is by being police officers of exter external relationships. In other words, with other local churches. That the congregation as a whole uh, should be looking out for who we ought to be having relationships with outside of this church. And we see an example of this in Acts chapter 15 where you have the Jerusalem Council, which is really no more than just members from a couple different churches coming together and discussing issues. And the point there is that, that each individual church is autonomous in, in the sense that they can determine who they have relationships with as far as other churches outside of them. So congregationalism is not an episcopacy where the authority lies within a few people outside of our church. And so when we need to understand something with regard to doctrine or practice, we go to this board outside of ourselves. Lots of churches are set up like that. Okay, we don't have a board of pastor, pastors who oversee what we believe. 
We don't have to answer to the Southern Baptist Convention or the Northern Baptist Convention or the IFBAM or, or any other organization. The congregation is independent, humanly speaking, with regard to pressure outside. We don't have to answer to anyone outside of the church. So we could say that the last and final court of appeal in matters of life and practice is is found in the congregation. The last and final court of appeal is not with the Bishop of Rome or Washington. It's not with an international body or the National Assembly or a conference or a convention. It's not with the president of the Garb Association. It's not with even the, the president of Detroit Baptist Seminary or a chairman or, or of a board of trustees or even in the pastor of this church and the deacons. That's not where the authority of the church the congregation lies. The congregation finds its authority within the group as a whole. Now, if we think about it, the congregation is much like a democracy, but it's actually better than a democracy. A democracy is a consensus by self-governed individuals. But the congregation is really a super-democracy in the sense that it is it, it is based on individuals that have supernatural um, ability in the sense that, that God works through individuals, individual believers. And so although outside, if someone were to come in and maybe do a report on our church or any other church that's set up like ours, they may look at it and say, well, that's just a democracy. When a congregation is working well, it actually is, runs more like a theocracy because it's the Holy Spirit ruling among God's people as a whole. That God is working through the people to accomplish His purpose, to, to maintain sound doctrine, to main, make sure that God's name is upheld. Now, I need to give you a warning for potential abuse of this responsibility or the way that this congregation is set up. Just like the office of the pastor can be abused and the office of the deacons can be abused as well, just because the office is biblical doesn't make it infallible. Okay? We know of fallible preachers. We know of ones that have really grossly gone against the faith. We know of, of deacons who have done the same. So that doesn't make them infallible. And the same thing is true about congregationalism. It is biblical. It is a biblical model. Um, but we must understand that just because it is a biblical model doesn't mean that the congregation is always right. Can you think of an example in the Scriptures where there was a consensus about what to do and yet it was completely against what God wanted to do? Can you think of an example? The one that keeps coming up in the study of the church is 1 Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy 4, or, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, where Paul says that there will come a time when people will no longer want to hear sound doctrine. And he's saying that that even if the congregation comes together and they, they make a vote and they say, you know what, this is what we want to hear. Just because congregationalism is biblical, they can actually make a wrong decision. They can do something against God. And so that's the word of warning. That the congregation, although biblical, can still be wrong. And so Paul warned against this. Now I'll turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, and we'll finish here. 
if this is a model that is set up in the scriptures, particularly in the New Testament, I believe it is, then how does it coincide with Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17? Because it doesn't seem to fit. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. If the, the final human authority lies within the congregation, then how does that work with Hebrews 13.17, that, that the congregation is to obey their leaders, obey their pastor or pastors? First of all, we need to recognize that the pastor of the church carries a greater weight of responsibility than you do. James chapter 3, verse 1 says that teachers will be judged with a stricter judgment. Now, they don't watch out for themselves only, but also for the whole church. So the, so, so the pastor has a greater responsibility, greater weight of responsibility. And um, ultimately, the, the accountability that the pastor will finally give, that I will finally give, is not to the church as a whole, but to God. And so that's the, the number one thing. And the importance of understanding this verse here in Hebrews is that congregation, the congregationalism is not operating as an entire committee all the time. Rather, the congregation should be in submission. It should be following, like that original illustration, like a sports team following their coach. The words that are used here at the beginning are obey and submit. Words that we don't generally like to hear unless they're referring to our subordinates, our children, the people who work under us at the job, things like that. But these words are not just used in the Scripture with our relationship to the church, but also in our relationships at home, our relationships with the government, our workplace, and the God. And so how do these two work together? Well, I think it, it comes down to trust. Now, you may be thinking, well, trust is earned. I can't just trust you. I have to earn, you have to earn my trust. And I think there is an element in which that is true. We, we shouldn't just blindly follow every single leader that we have. When a new pastor comes in, we shouldn't just do whatever he says. We should rather see how they live, see if they're consistent with what they're saying, see if it's consistent with what the Scripture is saying, see if they're serving God's purposes or their own. But there's more to it than that. Trust is, there is an element in which trust is earned, but also trust is given. Trust is a gift. We are called here, according to this verse, to entrust our lives to imperfect leaders. And that's similar to what we have in other areas of life, that we are entrusted to our parents as children, that we are entrusted to follow imperfect leaders, people who are not perfect. They don't always get it right. And yet we're entrusted to follow them. Should we wait and earn our parents' trust or should we follow them? Same thing is true with regard to the government, with regard to our workplace, ladies with regard to your husband. In a sense, trust should be given in faith as a gift, believing that God has placed them there as the, the, as the way in which He will accomplish His greatest purpose. And so there is a sense in which we have to be cautious about 
who we are following and what they are saying, where they're leading us. But there's also a sense in which we need to, as Hebrews says, obey and submit. Over the last several weeks, Detroit's professional basketball team, the Pistons, have had some turmoil going on. One of the longest tenured players, Richard Hamilton, um, was going to be traded before the trade deadline, but the trade fell through. And during that time, the coach wanted to preserve him and his body, make sure he didn't get injured so that the trade would fall apart. And so he put him on the bench for several games. After the trade deadline passed, he stayed on the Pistons team, and he began to be insubordinate to his coach. And if you follow sports at all, you know that this insubordination and venomous attitude spread to other players. He began to build up people who were against the coach, John Cooster, and um, so they decided that several of them, I think it was four or five players, decided they wouldn't show up to practice one day. They just weren't going to show up. Now, when they, when they were approached by their coach and others, they came up with all different excuses. One of them was sick, one of them had a personal issue, and so on. Well, as a response to that, Coach Cooster, Cooster um, benched them all that night. Guys who normally play several minutes, 30 or 40 minutes a game. He benched them all. And he did that for the next couple nights. And um, so the animosity continued. If we want to pass blame in this situation, I think there's blame to pass on both sides. Certainly the players were at fault. They should not have been that uh, insubordinate to their coach. But the coach was at fault Was at fault as well. He, he waited too long to deal with the issue. He, was, he wasn't communicating with his players. He should, he should have talked to Richard Hamilton about what was going on, let him understand what, what the situation was and when he was going to get back in, but it didn't work out that way. And so when you have a team of players and a coach who are at war with one another, you have a recipe for disaster. How many churches in our day struggle with an unhealthy mix of, un- of selfish leaders and stubborn members. And they're constantly at war with one another, fighting to, to get what they want. And they can't come together in unity, that first thing we looked at. To go after that one primary goal, the pure doctrine of the Word, growth in Jesus Christ. These types of congregations, the ones with selfish leaders and stubborn members, tend to wither away. But there's a second kind of church, and that is a church with great congregations, people who are concerned about the truth of the doctrine, concerned about unity, but they made a bad choice in their pastor. The pastor simply cares about himself and his position as leader, and often he is careless, and even sometimes he's reckless in his leadership. Now, God, I think, can work, work through this type of church if, if the congregation remains faithful and continues on to try to strengthen up and uphold sound doctrine. I think that can work. There's a third kind of church, and that's one where you have a godly, gifted leader, but the congregation is full of complacent, self-centered people. People who are only concerned about themselves. And I think God can work through that type of congregation as well if the pastor is willing to stick it out and, and be patient and patiently teach them, I think the congregation can be renewed. But the healthy church, the one that we're trying to work towards, is not, an, is not a perfect church. 
It's made up both of imperfect members and imperfect leaders. But the healthy church is the church that's filled with leaders who are marked by godly influence, godly initiative, godly leadership, godly service. And it's also filled with the congregation members who are concerned about watching over who is joining and who is leaving. And it's concerned about personal service, giving up themselves. And it's concerned about obedience. That is the type of church that God wants. That's the type of church that God can take and present before those angels and say, see the manifold wisdom of my greatness. I took these group of sinners who, who, who would have been in opposition to one another and probably were at times. But now look at them. This is a great display of my glory. And it will be something that throughout all the ages, God will be able to point back to and say, look at my wisdom. See, as a congregation, God displays His glory through you and through me. And so we need to work together to make sure that we are promoting godliness and pure doctrine and unity together in the faith that we have been called to preserve. And when we do, God will receive the glory that He deserves. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, I pray that You would guard us and guide us in this pathway, this journey that You have led us on. You never saved us to live our lives on an island but to manifest Your glory within a local church. And so we ask that You would give us the wisdom and the grace to think through these things clearly, to think about our responsibility, think about my responsibility as a pastor and that each of these people here would think about their responsibilities as members of the congregation. And they would, we would recognize that as we work together to pursue a unified goal that You will ultimately be glorified. That Your name will be honored. And you will receive the honor that You deserve. We ask for Your grace in this way. And we pray that You would protect us and guard us from the, the desires to have our own way, to make sure that, that we get what we want, but that we would humbly serve one another that both as leaders of the church and as members of the church, that each of us would be seeking how we can uh, help others out and help build them up in our most holy faith. That we would, when necessary, contend for the faith. That we would take very seriously membership in this church. We wouldn't simply allow anybody to join, but that we would be uh, serious about who joins, that it is people who are believers and who have been baptized and who, are, who have an orderly walk. And we would also be looking at our own group of people who are members. We would be considering who should not be members based on their current lifestyle. And Lord, you know that's the hardest, one of the hardest things to do as Christian is to exclude somebody from our membership. But we pray that you'd help us to have a godly motive and a godly goal in mind as we think through these things. 
and that we would not be passive in our responsibility, but that each of us would be um, actively seeking how we can honor you and fulfill our responsibility to contribute to the needs of the body as each joint supplies to the uh, working of, of your grace and that you would that you would create for yourself a beautiful, spotless, holy and blameless building that can be presented for all the angels and people even here on this earth and even ourselves to see. And when we see it, that we would not say, wow, what great people in this church, but that we would say, what a great God to be so patient with us and to be so compassionate and and for Him to be able to work through the Spirit to change our lives. Not simply external conformity, but internal conformity. That our hearts would be changed and be knit with Yours as we pursue Your purposes and Your glory. Give us the grace to do this, we pray. Because of our Savior who died for us, we pray these things. Amen.